0: Today is the first official day of summer. Uh, for us, that means we're going to change things up quite a bit over the summer. You're going to hear a lot of different teachers. We're going to be outside some. There's only one series that we have planned for the whole summer. Every other week has this element to it. We want, um, we want somebody to come up here and talk to you about something that God has burdened them to talk to you about. That's why I'm here today. There's uh, something that I've been burdened to speak about. And uh, right now, I'm convinced that there is a belief in our culture that is being widely accepted by those of us in the church. And instead of us influencing our culture, it's happening the other way around. So I want to talk about that some. Tracy and I were actually watching uh, a video this last week on chronotypes. I don't know if you know what this is. There was a sleep doctor who's basically studied different sleep patterns and said hey there's four different sleep patterns that work for different personalities and if you fit and sleep on the right pattern you'll be more productive in your day i was curious we were watching the video it was kind of interesting stuff and halfway through the video we saw this 17 second clip check this out these chronotypes make sense if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective it made it so that regardless of the time of night, someone was probably awake and able to alert the tribe of imminent dangers. And if nobody happened to be awake, at least there were a few dolphins that would wake up at the slightest sound. Dolphins or Dr. Bruce? Yeah, don't get distracted by the dolphins. That was the type. I don't even know if you picked it up because we've become so um, used to hearing it talked about that it doesn't even register anymore. They were suggesting that the way you sleep is impacted by evolution. In fact, when I listen to our culture talk, um, evolution explains almost everything that you do. It explains who you date, it explains how you feel anxiety, it explains how you react or respond in certain situations, it explains men as hunter-gatherers and thus we think with brawn and not brain, right? You, I mean, you hear it all. And. And if you were to question this at all, you would be written off as some kind of religious, closed-minded nut job. What's happening, though, is that that belief of evolution explaining everything that you see in this world is now starting to be adopted by followers of Jesus. I'll put the surveys up that have been done recently. These are broad surveys, but they account for a whole bunch of people who are followers of Jesus, who now think that everything that you see is explained by evolution. Uh, Now, I know there are some who reject the idea completely and totally, and that's not helpful either, because the reality is you can find microevolution in the systems. Uh, Darwin found that there were finches that would make um, subtle changes in the beak Sometimes uh, they changed and they, they were for a different purpose and the finch kept that. Sometimes in the same finch, the beak would change and then come back depending on if it was a drought or that kind of situation. But here's the problem. This has been pointed as evidence to Darwin's evolution, but it is not the same thing that Darwin wrote about. Darwin said this. I'm trying to explain how something simple could become complex. And it happened, he said, through random mutations over time, creating the survival of the fittest. That's how this works. And a lot of people have heard that so often. uh, They've been exposed to it so much, and it's been used as the explanation for so much that you see that even followers of Jesus accept that that's the way it is. Now, um, here's, here's part of the problem as I see it. Uh, every time I've talked about this topic, I've done this a few times in the past, I've, I've taken comments um, from both sides of the fence. There are some people who say, Blair, I think um, that you're too comfortable with science And others who think, I'm not comfortable enough. Like, hey, the scientist said it. You're not one. You probably should shut your mouth and not talk about stuff that you don't know. Well, I'm somewhere in between. See, I'm not anti-science. In fact, if you know the history at all, you wouldn't be either. Because the scientific method that's used to produce all the technologies that you love and experience right now, it exploded in the West for one reason. There were four guys who were considered the fathers of modern science, the scientific um, equations, all of those kind of things. Three of them were Christians, Bacon, Galileo, and Bacon. They believed that God had an ordered world and that if you, if you um, approach that in an ordered way, you would find stuff. And it exploded after they came up with this. What, the stuff that you are experiencing right now that you love, Christians did that. Christians had a part of that. And so it's significant to me um, that we were a part of the story. But what I'm concerned about is that even though um, science, I'm not anti-science, science is valuable, there is some problems. I don't know if you've heard this at all in the last, I don't know, year, I bet you Trust the science. Anybody heard that? Anybody ever heard that phrase? Yeah, like constantly. I don't have a problem trusting science, but I tell you what, I have a problem trusting scientists who I believe are fallen creatures, who have no problem bending the data to fit an agenda that they have, a political belief that they have, or even the ability to set themselves up to be seen as somebody. By the way, if you doubt this, come talk to me and I can give you examples, including from the world of evolution, where things were presented as being one thing and they were false. But this is one of the reasons I like science, is that eventually stuff will come out. Stuff will come out. And it's one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk to you about this today because here's the thing. Stuff is coming out on the science of evolution that's causing people to go, I wonder if we should be believing this or not. Now here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that there is a different view that we get from the scriptures that give us a better explanation for why things are the way they are. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go quickly. I'm just going to touch on these fast. Genesis 1:1. 1, 1, "In the beginning, God created." Psalm 33:6, "By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of His mouth." Romans chapter 1, verse 20. "For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Colossians 1:16 For in him all things were created, revelations chapter 4 verse 11 You are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by all your will they were created and have their being. This, my friends, goes from the opening of our book to the end of our book. And in the revealed scriptures, as he reveals himself through Jesus, as he reveals himself through the Holy Spirit, there is a consistent idea presented to us. I'm a creator. And I'm the creator God that you're looking for. I'm the explanation for everything that you see around you. I made it. And this has become difficult because Christians know this to be a fact, and yet they, I've heard a lot of them say, well, that's true that God created, but he used evolution to do it. He used random mutations over time to do his creative work. That's how God did it. And before you hitch yourself to that train, I want you to be careful because there are some problems with the evolution theory that's out there right now, and it's all coming from science. There's three problems, in fact. One is with random, um, one is with mutations, and one is with time. Besides those three things, the theory's holding up really well. Right? If you haven't figured it out, that's the theory. It's the whole thing. You can't get survival of the fittest without all of those pieces lining up. And yet, as more information has come to light more and more followers of Jesus are signing on. It's interesting, I had a conversation with somebody after first service who said, you know what, um, Blair, I, I grew up in the public schools. I never heard anything that you just talked about. And I knew, I knew that God had to be the creator, but I also heard all of this other information and I didn't even know there were some other sides to talk about with this stuff. That's my hope this morning. I want to expose you to some stuff that's going on that I think might surprise you. Uh, There are now, it's small, it's a small but vocal group of non-Christian and Christian scientists who have come together to say, this theory does not work anymore. It needs to be thrown out. It does not explain life as we see it. It does not explain why we are the way we are and why the world is the way it is. They're writing books. They're going on lectures. They're doing all kinds of things because they've looked at the science and they've said, we can't buy this anymore. So this morning, I've never done a service like this, but I'm going to let you um, be exposed to a whole bunch of stuff that they're going to tell you. Uh, the one guy that we're going to listen to, his name is David uh, Berlinski. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He wrote a book called The Deniable Darwin. Um, he lectures on this. He is not a follower of Jesus. But he thinks the theory has to go. The next guy, you're going to hear David Glantner. He's a Yale computer scientist. He doesn't know biology. He doesn't know any of that stuff. But he understands the code that's happening in all of these biological systems. He understands the mathematics behind it. He's done the research. And he wrote a paper um, called Giving Up Darwin that supported a book about Darwinism. He thinks it's got to go. He's not a follower of Jesus. Now, the last guy Stephen Meyer is. He's written a, a slew of books He's actually presented a different um, way to consider how, how did this all happen then. And we'll get into that at the end. But I want you to hear from their words some things that I'm not sure is being communicated to a lot of people. And I'm hoping by the end of this that if you've accepted evolution as just the way things are, that you'll be willing to reconsider that because of the problems that exist. So I'm going to start with one, one of the problems, and that's the problem of random. In order for evolution to be a natural thing, so nobody's out there uh, making this happen, no God, no anybody who's programming this, everything has to be random. The problem was when Darwin forecasted what would take place, he didn't understand um, some of the big probabilities that would exist So I want to start um, by examining the simple cell, because he thought a simple cell was simple, and if it would just mutate a little bit, it could be made into anything and everything over time. Is a simple cell a simple cell? Clip number one.
1: Yeah, it was good enough for Darwin. It's probably good enough for us as well, but it's not true. That's the big problem. This cell is an unbelievable complex bit of machinery, unfathomably complex. And we haven't understood its complexity at all. Every time we look, there seems to be an additional layer of revolvative complexity that needs to be factored into our theories. Don't forget, the, the, the eternal goal is to explain the emergence of this complexity. Yes, And if we're continually behind the curve because the complexity is increasing every time we look, that eternal goal is also receding from view, not approaching, it's receding. It's becoming more and more difficult to construct a theory for that.
0: Evolution's attempt was to try to explain how something simple got more complex, but every time they look, it's getting more complex. So how can you make statements about something that's already deeply complex? Darwin didn't know this. He didn't understand the mechanisms. He didn't understand what made up a cell. But um, we're going to let somebody who's going to talk to you about the coding that goes into a cell, how complex it is. He doesn't understand the biology, but he understands coding because of his computer background. And we're going to let him do that, clip two.
2: The code. It is remarkable for young people to learn in high school. It's remarkable for me, or in elementary school, to learn that, that proteins, molecules are assembled because there are codes. There are codes in the nucleus of cells that spell them out character by character, codon by codon. This codon means this amino acid, and the next one means that, and the next one means that. But the, but the mathematics the mathematics underlying these codons is very simple, and, and Darwin could perfectly well have understood if he had the facts. Each one of these positions has to be occupied by one of 20 amino acids. Okay, so you pick one of 20 guys for this position, And one of 20 guys for this position. You talk about
1: visualizing a string of beads. Yeah, like a string of beads. As
3: you're building a protein. Right, you have four different colored beads, roughly. I'm I'm
2: building a protein out of amino acids. Yes. And and I'm doing it by choosing the amino acids one by one by one by one by one. Yes. And I have 20 choices each time. Now, if there are several hundred of these things in the string, in the bead, in the necklace, it's a big necklace that wraps around your neck. so there are several hundred, or five times, whatever it is. That's a huge number of possible choices. The number of ways in which you can arrange the emerald followed by the ruby, followed by the opal, followed by the chunk of platinum, and another ruby, and another ruby, and a diamond, and a aquamarine. The number of ways you can arrange that is huge, grows exponentially. as the the string gets longer. So even when the string is short, even if it's a cheap necklace for your very first girlfriend, and it's all you can afford, it's still there's an astronomical number of choices. And Darwin could easily have computed that. He just didn't know about the amino acids. He didn't know about the necklace. He didn't know about the string. It's not the mathematics that stumped him. It's the biology. The mathematics is simple. A high school student can compute how many choices there are if there are 20 gems for position number one and 20 gems for position number two, and you have 60 gems altogether.
0: I'm relieved that there are a bunch of high school people in the room or people who've probably graduated from high school because this simple math is what we're gonna ask you to do, right, because he said, this is simple, 20 choices, 60 places, how many possibilities there are? I'll let you go ahead and work that out and get back to me real quick, right? Yeah, I had to look it up on a website. and this is the number of possibilities there are in a simple short string. And by the way, this is a very short string for what we're talking about. Very small. Now, for random to work in a number this big, it means the number of sequences that would actually produce something functional also has to be gigantic because it's such, a, it's such a large, large number. But if a tenth of those could find a functional string in it, then maybe random comes upon that and you find something that could work. Hmm. Clip three.
3: I think the, the required length of the protein molecule grows. The numbers grow exponentially. They inflate exponentially. And so the, the, the odds of a random search finding... The, 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 the one that makes the pretty necklace, to use to right. other so day the, was metaphor, the, dropped precipitously. And in this huge, unimaginably vast universe of possible combinations, the number of combinations that would produce a useful protein is what? Very- Exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare. And this is what we didn't know until the last, just the last couple decades. There was an extraordinary conference in the 1960s uh, held by, uh, con- convened by a number of MIT scientists, some of whom David knew very well. Murray Eden, Eden. Marcus Mar- Schusenberg. Mar- Mar- Schultz. And uh, they were the first to see the mathematical problem with Darwinism. They called it, Their conference was called Mathematical Challenges to Neo-Darwinism. But at the, at the time, they could compute the number of possible arrangements. But they didn't know at the time how many of the arrangements would result in functional proteins that would do a job in the cell. And so they didn't know, they couldn't exactly measure how hard the search was, would be on a random, random basis. The, especially the computer scientists, Murray Eden and others, knew that based on computer science, if, if this is functioning like a, a true linguistic system, uh, it's going to be—it's like uh, unlikely that you can do a random search and find a, meaning, a meaningful string of characters in DNA that will produce a meaningful protein. Okay. But people didn't know in, in the 1960s. By the by, early 2000s, there've been a number of different experimental measures of the rarity of the functional genes and proteins versus all the gibberish sequences. Right. And for a short, for, for example, just one result for a short protein, 150 amino acids long. The ratio is one uh, protein that will fold into a a functional structure uh, compared to 10 to the 77th gibberish sequences. So the ratio of functional to non-functional is 1 over 10 to the 77th power.
0: I want to put that on the screen so you can get an idea of what that looks like. Let's go ahead and put up the big number. One functional sequence... Out of a hundred trillion, 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 trillion. Random has to find that one. Let me give you an example of how this might play out in your life. Let's say you play Powerball. Don't, don't play Powerball. That is a game for the mathematically challenged. Don't do it, okay? Your chances of winning are one and 292 million. Now, how many times have we seen millions and millions of people put money down on Powerball and nobody picks the right sequence and it goes to the next week and it goes to the next week and it goes to the next week and it it only ends up scoring after hundreds of millions of people put their guesses in and finally, somebody finally comes across it. That's one out of 292 million. This is one out of 100 trillion 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 The mathematicians who look at this say, on a mathematical scale, what you're talking about is impossible. And what's what's amazing is that what we're saying about when you look around the world and you say, evolution explains everything that I see, you're saying this process happened over and over and over and over again. One out of a hundred trillion, 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 trillion times happening over and over again finds the magic sequence. Once, maybe. Twice? Three times? A hundred million times? Difficult. And they've concluded, listen... If you want to believe that a random solution would find these kind of odds and make it work, you can. But it's impossible and evolution has a random problem. Can't be random. Let's look at mutations. The second problem. Um, We're going to listen to David talk about the process of mutation that we've been told is what happens that yields us a different a different animal. It starts with one and it gets us a different animal and where you have to be at in order for that mutation to actually work. Clip four.
2: I've got to get in there early before they finish putting it together. Putting all the, you know, the hoofs on and getting the wool on. I've, if he's a sheep, I like sheep. I have to say, you know, I have to get in there early before they start building. So they don't accidentally build a mouse or a, or a leopard or a, or a zebra. I have to say, look, sh- a sheep get bones this high, and we need a nose about this big, and we need sheep ears, and we need hooves. If sheep have hooves, I mean, we need wool. You, you know, get, o- get all this stuff together. So I've got to act early. Now, if I'm going to now, if I'm going to create a new species, I'm going to mutate, and instead of building a sheep, I'm going to build a little uh, horse. Because horses come in cheap size, where they call? Well, anyway, they're called. SHETLAND POLYNESA. Yeah, yeah. I got it. To do that, there may be a mutation that that makes me order purple wool, or, or the wrong color hooves, or a stomach that won't quite fit. But a mutation that is going to recreate the creature in such a way that it's a different creature is, biologists tell me and farmers tell me, almost certainly likely to be fatal. I mean, a a mutation that makes a huge difference and it starts putting the head on backwards. It starts starts giving him 17 tails or, or too many internal organs or forgets the blood or something like that. Because this is right early on that I'm acting when I'm doing tremendously important things. And if I make a slip at this all important stage, I'm not gonna make a little error in the density of the fur. It's going to be a big error in the design of the internal and the external that makes this creature what it is.
0: His point is that if you don't act early, the creature gets established. And so if anything that comes after that, you might see a beak change or something like that, but you're not going to see the animal change. The only place for it to work is early on. But when it happens early on, it's fatal. So what do you do? David Berlinski tries to frame this out really well, clip number mm, five, four,
1: five. They come late in development, they're not gonna make a difference. The the organism is already constructed. May have more lavish eyebrows. If they come early, they can't make a difference because inevitably they destroy the organism.
3: Too many things downstream depend on those early cell divisions.
1: So we're faced with a real destructive dilemma. Late, no good. Early, no good. Well, when? We've sort of exhausted the, uh, the possibilities, and I'm sure that did.
0: If mutations are the thing that get us to the new creature, when? Too early it doesn't work. Too late, it doesn't work. The reality is, mutations don't work to generate a new creature. They can't, they can't figure out where in the world they would happen in the process that would actually generate something different. It's why they haven't found anything in the fossil record. So the idea that we're relying on mutations to get us something different, all you're getting is something that's fatal in the process. This theory has a mutation problem. And if you're trying to explain everything around you by saying it mutated that way, it would all be dead. The last problem is a problem about time. let's, let's, take, let's take the scientific's um, acceptance of how long the Earth has been here, 4.5 billion years. then let's look at the need to find one out of 700, or 7, 77 to the 10th power or whatever, 10 to the 77th power. Is there enough time in four and a half billion years to do a random search to find the one that will work? This is especially troubling because he pulled up the slide with a Cambrian. In the Cambrian um, section of the fossil record, they have found an explosion of life. Darwin knew about this for a long time. You're going to hear him talking about it. And Darwin thought it could be explained as long as they found some stuff. But I want, I want you to hear uh, what they've actually found. This is clip number six. Yeah, it was a
3: problem that even Darwin was aware of, and he wrote about it in The Origin of Species. He said it was inexplicable on in his view of, uh, of life. Uh, but he, he felt that the, the future fossil finds would fill in the, the, the missing ancestral forms that were evident. What happens in the Cambrian is you get uh, a huge number of what are called the uh, animal body plans, uh, where a body plan is a unique configuration of body parts and tissues. And they arrived very abruptly in the fossil record, without discernible connection to earlier precursors or earlier ancestors in the pre-Cambrian so record. So if, if this wall were the side of a canyon, halfway up we'd see so you have a stripe of rock, and in that stripe, you'd find a whole bunch of new forms of, of, of animal life. And under, in the layers underneath, there would be no n- intermediate be nothing, nothing leading to with that. Any it just discernible pops connection. Up. Right And so the, the Cambrian explosion itself has been differently. Dated, but increasingly, the, the, the date that David used of 70 million years is a very generous date for it. The, 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 the age range is actually narrowing as a result of additional findings. It's now about 10 million years is the increasingly accepted date. And there are major explosions in one Chinese scene. There's 13 to 16 different major groups of animals that have arisen in a 5 to 6 million year window. It's, it's incredibly, abrupt geologically, when you consider the age of the earth is four and a half billion years. It's also very abrupt biologically, because there's a mathematical branch of Darwinian theory called population genetics that allows us to calculate how much, time, how much change, evolutionary change we ought to expect in a given amount of time if we know things like the mutation rate, the generation time, the right. population sizes. And 5, 10, even 70 million years is a blink of an eye in terms of those, the calculations that can be made for what are called waiting times. And the expected waiting times for the amount of change that's evident in the Cambrian blow out the time scale, if you will. They're hundreds of millions or billions of years. So this is a really unexpected event, both biologically, mathematically, and geologically on a Darwinian view of things.
0: What they found would need a hundred, hundreds of billions of years if you were going to explain this through randomness. Four and a half billion instead. Which raises the question, well, then... That we have we haven't had enough time for any of it. Hmm, clip seven. The
2: point is, from whatever angle you come at it, the, the answer is no, there has not been enough time. The, the, the number of throws we've had is p- too puny even to talk about. It doesn't even approach puniness <laughs> and Davis. certainly is nowhere near reasonable. So, so we would get that if we had a reasonable uh, time, but we don't. We didn't. We haven't.
0: See, he's not opposed to the idea that it could work out if you had enough time. But he's being realistic, evaluating it, going there just hasn't been enough. There hasn't been enough time for us to have the number of chances where random would actually work to get to the one sequence that could possibly work. Not enough time. So because of that, you can't explain it this way. So the question would be, okay, great. You're starting to stack all of these up. You've got random that doesn't work. You've got mutations that doesn't work. You don't have enough time for this to work. So are people backing away from this? And I would tell you no. These guys writing these books, doing these lectures are getting attacked quite frequently because what's, um, what's really important to them is that it becomes a material way for this to, or a natural way for this to have developed. They don't want any possibility that there was some other kind of force of nature or anything that would cause this to happen. It has to be random. And so they keep coming up with natural kind of ideas. I don't know if you've heard of the multiverse. You're going to hear a lot of it. Because they need that because the random and time problems are so bad that if they don't come up with more possibilities, they can't can't explain the universe that we live in. So they're going to say there are infinite number of universes. We're just one of them. And we happen to be in the one place where all of these things work out. It's magical. That's what's taking place right now. Stephen Meyer has a different suggestion. He suggests that there is a different way for us to consider, um, instead of natural, a different order. So I want you to watch what he has to say. Clip 9.
3: Darwinism has filled a niche in our intellectual life that is necessary. You've got to give some kind of account of where all these wonderfully uh, intricate systems we call living organisms came from. And the fundamental commitment of Darwinism is some kind of bottom-up materialistic account where the molecules get more complex and form uh, more complex molecules and cells, and the cells uh, compete to form more complex organisms. So now what we're getting is post-neo-Darwinian theories of evolution that are trying to uh, provide new mechanisms that will uh, account for the, 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 the things that the Darwinian mechanism doesn't account for. So even you who bear the scars of abuse from Darwinists say, Darwin may have been mistaken in his answers, but he was asking invaluable questions. He's asking invaluable questions, but I think he got it wrong. I think all Darwinians, in the broad sense, get it wrong. They're trying to explain something very, very complex in terms of bottom-up, undirected processes. And yet what we see in life, uh, complex miniature machines, complex information processing systems, digital code, these are things that bear the hallmark of mind. And they suggest rather a top-down instead of a bottom-up approach. So I'm sure people committed to a materialistic view of things will continue to to generate bottom-up explanations. But I think we're in a new day. We're looking at life in light of our own high-tech digital computing uh, technologies and realizing these systems bear all the hallmarks of design. Let's start to look at life differently. And I think looking at it from a bottom-up Darwinian approach is holding science back. We're starting to make predictions based on intelligent design we were, some, some of our guys were the first people to predict that the non-coding regions of the genome, previously identified as junk by the neo-Darwinians, have in fact uh, are in fact importantly functional. And so there's the, looking at life as a design system is actually yielding insights into how life works.
0: So you heard him mention intelligent design, and the theory that he's written about intelligent design is purely scientific. He is not trying... cause science to come to a conclusion about if there is a God or isn't a God. Science can't do that. What he's saying is there is so much complexity. There are so many things that are intricate and amazing about the the sequencing and the possibilities of this sort of thing that the only conclusion that you could come to is that somebody designed this. It would be like walking in here this morning and seeing the keyboard over there and going, man, I wonder how that randomly got together. Like, the systems that you are, the systems that we are, are so intricate. He's saying, listen, somebody had to design that. There's too much information. It's put together in such a way that makes sense. Somebody designed this. And it's being roundly rejected by the scientific community. They don't even want to have a conversation about it. And David Glantner has an opinion as to why that's happening. Next clip.
2: Mike argument is with people who dismiss uh, intelligent design without considering it, it seems to me, it's widely dismissed in my world of academia as some sort of theological put up job. It's an absolutely serious scientific argument. In fact, it's the first and most obvious and intuitive one that comes to mind. It's got to be dealt with intellectually, not not by the bigotry, the anti-religious bigotry, which is one of the most of the intellectual world in the United States, the West generally.
0: He just straight-up said it's bigotry. From what he sees, they're unwilling to even consider He's not a follower of Jesus, but he thinks the conversation at least is intuitive, that you're looking at this and going, it looks like a design system. Shouldn't we have a conversation about this design system? And here's why I want you to be cautious about that. Like, if you have, if you have accepted evolution as the, the way things are, this is what made the world the way it is, I want you to pay attention to this clip really carefully because David's going to go into it in a little bit further as to what's really going on with this. David's next clip.
2: When I look at, at their intellectual behavior, what they publish, and much more important, what they tell their students, um... Darwinism has indeed passed beyond a scientific argument, as far as they are concerned. You take your life in your hands to challenge it, intellectually. Yes. they will destroy you if you challenge it. Now, I haven't been destroyed. I'm not a biologist, and you know, I don't claim to be an authority on this topic. But, um, and you know, a book review is not the same as a book. It's, the, it's the sort of a satellite around the book. And anyway, it remains a case that I have nothing personally to charge my colleagues with. But what I've seen in their behavior intellectually and at colleges across the West is nothing approaching free speech on this topic, is a bitter rejection, not just a a, a sort of bitter, fundamental, uh, angry, outraged, violent rejection, which comes nowhere near scientific or intellectual discussion. I've seen that happen again and again. I'm a Darwinism. Don't you say a word against it, or will, or I don't want to hear you. Period. Which proves that you're attacking their religion, in effect. I am attacking their religion, and I don't blame them for being all head up.
0: Maybe what you haven't realized is that you've been accepting another religious belief because they don't have the evidence for it. More and more evidence is coming out against it, and yet they are ardently supporting it. And when you end up on their bandwagon, all you're doing is accepting a belief system that they have, not based on evidence. You want to know what there's more evidence for? There's more evidence that somebody from the top up designed this thing and put it together. You have more evidence as a follower of God to, to accept when he said, I created, that something happened, that that was that incredible. My friends, you, you are put together in such a complex and amazing way. When the scripture said in Psalm 139 that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, no joke. You're, you were created with a purpose. And part of, part of the thing that I don't like about This idea that Christians are accepting that evolution did this is you're accepting that you are here because of some random process you're not. God created you with intention and purpose and meaning and your life has that. You were designed with that. And so it may be time to look at all the facts, to look at all the possibilities, all the things that actually could function to look at what mutations actually do, to look at the amount of time that's available, and to ask yourself, why have I accepted this belief system that's just missing on all cylinders? And maybe it's time to come back. Come back to an acceptance that what we see is amazing, incredible, mind-boggling, had to come from the hand of a creator, a creator who's been revealing himself to us just to give you one more chance just to reconsider, I want, I want to let David Berlinski encapsulate some last thoughts that I think are really helpful. Clip 11.
1: Darwin created a 19th century local theory without looking at extreme cases that was reasonably successful for breeders for the explanation of local characteristics like beak size or the growth of wings But he entirely failed to explain what he thought he was explaining, the emergence of biological complexity on the species level or higher order levels. He wasn't able, it was a premature question to address an audience about the origin of species. He couldn't say anything about what he did not know, what he could not comprehend. And the fact that he did not know or could not comprehend these things is simply a reflection of the fact that we do not know or cannot comprehend those things in the 21st century. So the question, was, the question addressed was widely premature in the 19th century. It's still premature. We're just learning the structure of intellectual inquiry necessary to understand something like the biological cell. And it's much harder a problem than we ever suspected Much harder.
0: I love that he said, listen, that the theory that was put forward was too early. We didn't have enough information. And it's only a reflection of the fact that right now we still don't have enough information to put forward a workable theory. So if if you're there in that camp and you've, you've kind of believed that you're some product of some random thing and that your choices, that the way you've lived life is explained from this programming that you've gotten through evolution, I hope you'll stop and reconsider. You are responsible before God for your choices. You were made in his image. And it's an incredible opportunity that we have to embrace this creator God. And I hope you will. Um, I've taken a lot of questions after the first service, so I'm just going to let you know. We're going to put out some links for some reading material for some more videos on this uh, because there's some interest in that. So we're going to put those out. You'll see those on Facebook. um, And you can follow this up and do some more research. If you want to have a conversation, I'd love to have a conversation with you about this kind of stuff. But I hope you'll reconsider that you are in fact fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves you and designed you with purpose. Can we pray real quick? God, I love the fact that you have um, designed stuff so intricately and beautifully that it blows our mind even today that we can't explain it, that we can't understand how complex a single cell is. It's supposed to be simple, and yet the information, the coding, just complex beyond our imagination. God, we're so grateful that you are a creator, God. May we hold you up as that and give you the praise that you deserve, knowing that we are not part of some random accident, but we have purpose and meaning. I ask that you would challenge those who need to wrestle with this to do so over the next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I hope you'll come back next week. Um, I'm going to pick a section of scripture that I've heard. Um, I've actually had people in my office say, if this is in the Bible, then I can't be a Christian. And I want to walk you through that, and I'm going to give you some ways to think about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you come back next week. Thanks for being here.